My name is Stephen. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here, and it's really good to have you this morning. I was having a conversation with a friend, and um, we were discussing biblical teaching, and uh, he brought up this term that I'd never heard before. It was called closed topics. And what closed topics are, are topics you're not allowed to talk at at church. You're not allowed, or you're not supposed to, or you shouldn't because they're closed topics. I said, oh, give me some examples of closed topics. He said, uh, porn, divorce. It's like, well, I'm 0 for 2 in the last two weeks. So we got that going for us. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We want to um, address this issue this morning, this, this passage, um, with the sensitivity and I think the respect that it deserves, understanding that it is a very sensitive topic. It's a sensitive topic that affects probably almost everyone in the room. Um, it certainly affects everyone and, and probably very personally or very closely um, in one way or another. And so we want to look and see what the Bible says. My job um, as a, a preacher is to preach the Bible, regardless if it makes us feel good or not, uh, regardless if it agrees with culture or not, uh, but just to teach the scripture. And so my job this morning is to teach what the Bible says about divorce. In Proverbs, it says, the wounds of a friend are medicine. If I um, happen to offend someone this morning through the teaching of scripture, I hope that you would know that it is out of love and grace. It is out of wanting to show you what is best for you because of what Jesus has said. And so this is our heart. This is our motive. Um, but we don't skip topics. We don't skip topics um, because they make us uncomfortable. We don't skip topics because they don't agree with culture. We don't skip topics because they might help our church grow more. We teach what the Bible says. And so that's where we're at this morning. We're in this passage because we're in a series called Exceedingly Righteous. And the idea behind Exceedingly Righteous is uh, there was the Pharisees' righteousness, which was an outward righteousness. And then Jesus, Jesus shows up on the screen, on the scene, the screen, what in the world? Okay, so Jesus shows up and he says, I can talk, I promise. And, uh, and, and he says, the righteousness of the Pharisees isn't enough. And they looked in and they're like, what do you mean it's not enough? These guys are like perfect. He said, no, there's a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And what Jesus was talking about was an internal righteousness. See, outward righteousness is uh, just, uh, are you following the rules? And internal righteousness is, is your heart in the right place? Jesus is after our heart, not after our rule following. And so the righteousness that exceeds goes deeper. The righteousness of the Pharisees is actually easier you can just do action on the outside and never change what's on the inside. The exceeding righteousness is much harder because it challenges us to the core of who we are. It makes us look in ourselves and say, am I really doing what, what Scripture tells me to do, what the Holy Spirit instructs me to do? And so that leads us to this passage. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Who said that? Well, Moses did, and he said it in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And see, divorce was apparently getting rampant or was rampant in that culture. And so Moses comes up with this instruction, give her a certificate of divorce, and uh, you can uh, get a divorce. And uh, now the Pharisees are looking and saying, so Moses, all we have to do, right, is get a certificate, and, and we can get a divorce, like a no-fault divorce. We don't have to come up with a reason. If we just don't want to be married to her anymore, we just get the certificate, right, and we're good. And Jesus then instructs them on what 
Moses meant. What did Moses mean when he said, give her a certificate of divorce? Well, here's the first thing that Moses was trying to do. Uh, Getting a certificate of divorce was a process or a way of slowing down the process. See, one of the overarching teachings we're going to see as we move through this is that divorce ought to be an always, always, always a last resort and a last option. Jesus is going to use very strong words later on in our scripture and our study on the effect of divorce and what divorce is in God's eyes. And the teaching over and over is slow down, slow down. And so here, Moses instructing them, give a certificate of divorce because the process of getting a certificate for divorce was a communal process. It kind of been like this. You want to divorce her? And this is in a culture where men had all the power. You want to divorce her, man? You want to leave your, the wife of your youth? You want to just discard her? Fine. Let's go find everybody who went to your wedding and put them out in front. Tell them. Tell them why. It was an accountability practice. It was a measure to slow it down. It wasn't just a get a piece of paper, sign, no fault, get out. I spoke to this last week a little bit as well. Another thing that Moses was doing here, that God was doing through Moses, was he was protecting the plight of women. He was saying, we're not going to let you men just discard and move on without any accountability. So it was God creating a safe zone, a protection, a place where where a woman didn't have to be afraid that her husband's just going to run and leave and desert. God was saying, no, no, no. That might happen elsewhere, but not here. That's not how we do it in the kingdom. So this is what Moses said. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And that's kind of an explanation for what the certificate was. Now Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, oh, but I say this. Oh, and these are hard words. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife... Now, of course, we live in a culture where um, women can initiate divorce as well. And so in that way, we have to uh, see the, the picture through both sides. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this word sexual immorality, uh, by the way, this is known as the exception clause the exception clause. And um, lots of scholars and theologians, pastors, they debate when do you enact the exception clause? How should you enact the exception clause in divorce? It says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now you're going to see here that there's different language used for sexual immorality or um, committing adultery. They're not the same word. They're not the same word in the Greek. They're not supposed to mean the same thing in here. By the way, don't underestimate Jesus' brilliance. He's just gotten done previously talking about what sexual immorality is, how it's a disease of the heart. It's not just the act of committing adultery. It's what's going on inside of you. And immediately after Jesus talks about sexual morality, uh, in that way, he goes right into talking about divorce, brings the word back up. And you know what he talks about next? Let your yes be yes and your no be now. Keep your covenant. Keep your word. Well, Jesus knows what he's doing. The teaching is sequential. Except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Now, this word sexual immorality is a Greek word, porneia. It probably wouldn't take you too long to uh, see where that word ended up in our modern day language, pornography. 
And this word porneia is different than the word for committing adultery, and it means a variety of sexual sin. Any sin that wouldn't be, or any sex that wouldn't be godly sex. We talked about godly sex last week. Man, woman, marriage. That's it. Man, woman, in marriage. That's it. That's the only definition for biblical godly sex. Man, woman, marriage. Porneia is sexual activity outside of that. Now, the question would be, well, to what extent? To what variety? Is an addiction to pornography porneia? I think it could be. Is sexting porneia? Is sending uh, naked pictures via Snapchat porneia? Is uh, engaging in conversation um, with a, a person in a chat room or, or a text message porneia? I mean, I think so. I think in our modern culture, we can see this adapted in many ways. It's sexual intent outside of the marriage. Sexual lust outside of the marriage. And when do we enact an exception clause? Here's where it's Jesus gets at our heart. I don't think what Jesus is teaching here is, so great, if you find that your husband has looked at porn once and you find it on the computer, you have an escape. You're, you can get out. This is not an escape clause for the, uh, the purpose of having a way out. You have to understand what's going on here. In the Old Testament, you know what the crime was for adultery? Or the punishment for adultery? Death. Death. Death was the punishment for adultery. Now, Romans teaches us that the marital bond is broken when? Upon the death of the other spouse. Both Calvin and Luther, these are two great Christian theologians. Uh, if you don't know who they are, it's kind of like the equivalent of saying both Michael Jordan and LeBron James, okay? Like that's their status in the theologian world. Both Calvin and Luther taught in the, uh, when they were around, which 1500s, uh, that even though civil law no longer mandated death for adultery, it doesn't mean God changed his mind. In other words, in God's eyes, adultery, adultery is, is the death of the covenant. Therefore, freeing the other spouse to remarry, to pursue marriage again. Now, even though this is true, what is the overarching story of Scripture? Redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation. So even when the exception clause can be enacted, I think Christ would still have us slow down. Seek, wherever possible, reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness, full forgiveness. And by the way, I had a friend, they were joking about this, but they said, you know, if, uh, if, if one of us ever cheats on the other, um, you know, we won't divorce each other. We'll just have a slave for the rest of our lives. And they were kind of kidding. And they were kidding. But the idea was, and I think we would all maybe kind of think this, well, then you owe me forever. That's not biblical forgiveness. It's not. You know, biblical forgiveness is restoring friendship, reconciling, and moving on where that thing does not hold over the other person anymore. That's biblical forgiveness. That's why it's so hard. 
That's why it's so amazing Jesus gives it to us. So what do we do when there's sexual immorality present in the marriage? First, of course, the offending party seeks forgiveness and repents. And then I think the party that was offended should, as much as they are able, as much as they are able, and as long as they are able, seek reconciliation and restoration and try to save the marriage. See, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus teaches more extended on marriage when he says this, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so if you're single this morning and you're like, what's marriage all about? Let me tell you. Let me tell you what marriage is all about. If you're married and you're wondering, let me tell you what marriage is all about. At the essence of marriage is a covenant, a lifelong commitment to another person. This mirrors the covenant that Jesus makes to us on the cross. The point of marriage is companionship. It was the problem that marriage sought to fix. And so the heart of marriage is a lifelong covenant and companionship. And this is what Jesus teaches, that every marriage that's a biblical marriage, man-woman marriage, every marriage that is a biblical marriage, regardless of how it was entered into, is covenanted by God. That means when you went into the marriage, you're like, we were young and we were dumb. So now it's time to get out. Now that marriage was covenanted by God. Every marriage, every marriage. There's this story in the Old Testament where a group of people were gonna get annihilated by the Israelites. And what they do, because they know the Israelites were annihilating everybody, is they sneak in and under lie and deception, they get the Israelites to sign a treaty with them. The Israelites didn't see God in the process of signing the treaty and making the covenant with this group of people. Then when they're having conversation um, and they realize that this was a group of people that they were actually supposed to annihilate, even though the people lied to them, they think, well, let's break the covenant and do what we're supposed to do. And you know what God says? Don't break the covenant. He says the covenant now supersedes even the sinful act of entering into it. Every marriage entered into is covenanted by God. And you know what God says? What I made, don't break. And actually he says, don't divide us under. And what he's saying here is this, don't amputate. Imagine if there was a doctor running around town and uh, whenever you went in to see this doctor, you said, hey, my finger hurts. His response was, okay, cut it off. Hey, my, my, my foot hurts. Cool, I got a solution. Cut it off. Hey, my head hurts. I got a solution. Cut it off. What would we say about that doctor? That's a bad doctor. Don't go to that doctor. In the same way, a Christian counselor, a Christian pastor, a Christian person whose solution to every marital problem is cut it off, is bad at what they're doing. Divorce in scripture is always the last option. except on the ground of sexual morality, right? We just worked through that. There's a second clause, 
Paul enacts this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can read that. This one's called the desertion clause. And it's when an unbeliever and a believer are married. And the unbeliever and the believer are married. And uh, the unbeliever says, I want out. I'm leaving. I'm breaking the covenant. I'm gone. You know, and Paul says, in that case, let him go or let her go if the unbeliever chooses to opt out of the marriage. So we have a desertion clause and we have a sexual immorality clause. And you know that these are the only two legitimate biblical reasons for divorce. They're the only two that are given. Now this brings up a slew of questions. So let's address them. Moses, when, when they did, Moses, commanded, I'm in Matthew 19, commanded one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, why? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And then he repeats what he said in Matthew 5. Jesus says, you want to know why divorce happens? Sin. Sin. That's why it happens. He says, hardness of heart leads to divorce. Now, we need a full understanding of this theologically to make sure that we arrive at the right place. You know what God says about divorce in Malachi chapter 2? He says, I hate it. He says, I hate divorce. He says that in Malachi chapter 2. But interestingly enough, you know what he says in Jeremiah? You know how he labels himself in Jeremiah? A divorcee. God calls himself a divorcee. To that point, let me say this. When it comes to divorce, there is a ridiculous amount of self-righteousness. A ridiculous amount of I, Christian, am better than that Christian because I have not divorced. That is the, Pharise- the righteousness of the Pharisees. That is the righteousness of the Pharisees. And if you find yourself self-righteous to those who have been divorced, then you are self-righteous to God. And that seems pretty dumb. So please don't let that seep in either. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So when we understand the entire, entire biblical idea of marriage, uh, and by the way, um, it's a divorce talk, so it's also a marriage talk. So if you're single or you're looking to get into marriage, um, you know, pay attention. Uh, the, the Bible is full of what a biblical God-honoring marriage is supposed to look like. And so uh, it instructs the, uh, the woman to uh, honor and to respect her husband. It instructs the man in the covenant to love and to seek to understand and to cherish and to provide for his wife, which means uh, when the woman is not doing her role and the man is not doing his role, then they are breaking or they are not operating within the covenant of their marriage. And what do we do when someone sins against us? Well, love covers over a multitude of sins. So the first step is that our love and our, and our grace towards them should allow for forgiveness within the context of that marriage, hopefully long before it ever leads to a divorce. But what about when it moves beyond points of acceptable behavior? 
What about when it moves uh, beyond the point where now you don't have a husband who's deserted his wife from the house, but you have a husband who's deserted his wife completely emotionally? Or you have a, um, you have a, uh, um, a, a wife who uh, hasn't left, but man, does she berate and destroy him. What then? And then, of course, you have other extreme examples. Uh, uh, and let's talk about abuse for a second. Let's talk about abuse. First off, let's just say this. That any interpretation of scripture that would lead a man to look at his wife and say, scripture says you must submit to me and that allows for abuse is absolutely disgusting and an abomination to scripture. And any woman who is underneath that type of marriage should immediately take action. We live under civil law. That's biblical. Abuse is against the law. That man, not only should there be separation, there should be legal action taken. And it's disgusting to use the Bible to deliver anything else. And if you're a guy who does that, shame on you. Now, in a case of abuse, what should happen biblically? Doesn't say, except for sexual immorality and abuse. So what do you do with that? Well, first off, if that individual, if that individual is, um, professes to be a Christian, then every time they sit in a Sunday morning service and they hear the gospel spoken, they are rejecting it. They're rejecting it willfully over and over if their actions continue to do that which means they're rejecting church discipline. And eventually, if their actions persist in that, and there is a continued attempt to, seek, um, uh, to stop, and, and I know physical abuse is maybe slightly different from verbal abuse or emotional abuse or sexual abuse, and I would clump all of these, even though some of those are harder to measure, in one category right now, where a man or a woman continues to do that and sits under biblical instruction and teaching and continues to operate outside of the covenant of their marriage, they are rejecting the gospel. That's hardness of heart. They're refusing to repent. And you don't get to use your personality as an excuse. You say, oh, I'm just not like that. I'm just not the type of person who can understand a woman. I'm just not the type of person. No. You made a commitment to seek to understand her. Read a freaking book. So what in that case? Here we have a completely unrepentant person. What do you do then? Jesus has already explained that divorce is amputation. So I would think you would take every possible, every possible attempt to see restoration and reconciliation. That you would slow the process down as slow as possible. That you would separate if need be, that you would seek counseling, that you would seek prayer, and that you would believe in the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to change somebody. And that you would take as much time as can be. And beyond that, 
I think the Bible teaches us that no person should live in fear, especially of the person who's supposed to be their protector. Now, I will say this. On the other hand, the scripture teaches us or says very little about making an expedient decision to make yourself feel better in the moment. The scripture says much about endure through difficulty for the sake of your holiness. It says much about that, which means we're going to err on that side, except in the case of physical abuse, we're going to get out of that situation, right? Okay, and in other areas, neglect, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, I think the, the same can be true. Separation. And if there is not a sign of true, deep repentance, then all we have here is looking at Jesus saying, hardness of heart leads to divorce. So what am I saying? I'm saying that as a Christian, the first thing we always do is look inside first always. And I'm not trying to say you're getting abused because you deserve it. That's, that's sick. I'm not saying that. I'm saying a Christian always looks inside first and says, can I be a better wife? Can I be a better husband? Is there something I can do? Always first. Okay. That's first. Secondly, what a Christian does, they take steps to make sure that they're not in a harmful environment for them or their children. They bring in other people and they seek restoration as much as possible. As much as possible. And then beyond that, through a lot of prayer and a lot of counsel, you decide what happens next. I think through discussion with pastors and elders and people you trust. But I can't read a passage of scripture. See, a lot of people will say, oh, well, there's that one passage that talks about uh, an uh, a believing wife should stick with her unbelieving husband. That doesn't say anything about the unbelieving husband being a bad husband. That guy might be the best husband in the world. All Paul was teaching there is just because you're not both Christians, don't leave. That's what he was teaching. He, he wasn't implying that that person was even a horrible husband. You're just saying he's not a Christian. I can't draw in a conclusion that tells me from scripture that a person who is in an abusive relationship must stick in that and endure abuse. Now, it's any action that comes on the other end of that must be carefully discerned and prayed through and sought counsel over and entered into with the most cautious, humble spirit. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, first, we have to see, we have to see how marriage is perhaps the most beautiful picture of the gospel. You have to see this in here. You have to see that what God was doing in marriage was giving us an earthly mirror 
an earthly example of our relationship with him. And that God gave us marriage for companionship and that the gospel is all about companionship. And that God hates divorce and that Romans 8 teaches us that once we're in Christ, there's nothing we can do that would make him divorce us. Then nothing can separate us from his love once we're in him. That God valued intimacy and, and covenant with us so much that he was willing to secure it with his death on the cross. We have to see this in marriage. We have to be softened by it. And then we have to see that in the same way Christ is committed to us, when we make a covenant to someone else, we are committed to them in that way. And that amputation is our last resort, always. So what do you do with this teaching? What do you do if you're single and you're hearing this? What do you do if you're single? We got into the eunuch part. One of the lines in the eunuch part said, they're, uh, they're become a eunuch for their, by their own um, endeavor for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus was teaching something in here. He was teaching this. He was teaching the value of singleness. He was teaching the value of singleness as a season of life and an opportunity to seek the kingdom in ways outside of singleness that you never can before. And so whether you're single for the first time or single for the whateverth time, it is an opportunity to seek the kingdom unlike any time before. And so if you're single, if you're single, what do you do? You serve and you learn to serve the kingdom. Because if you think, oh, it'll get easier once I'm married, it won't. If you're single, you learn to give generously now because it's easier now than when you're married. If you're single, you deal with things that will impede the uh, uh, intimacy that and purity that you'll have with your spouse one day. If you're single, you look at any sin inside of you, particularly sexual sin, and you don't say marriage will fix this. You'll say Jesus will fix this, and you fix it now. And you become the person. One pastor says it this way, become the person that you're looking for, for the other person who's looking for you. And so you use singleness as a tool. And you know what? If you are single and you're at a church, we love you, we honor you, and we're really glad that you're here. What do you do if you're married? What do you do with this teaching if you're married? Oh, I hope you use this as a reminder. As a reminder of the covenant that you've made. And that you would take every effort to preserve that covenant. That you would grow. That you would not just settle at the level of relationship that you're at. That you would continue to grow in it. That you would live up to the covenant that you've made by being the person that you're covenanted to be. That you would fight against anything that would come in against it. That you would not settle for your sake, for your kids' sake, for the kingdom's sake. Take the trip. Read the book. Do what you got to do. And fight for it. What do you do if you're on the verge or the brink? What do you do? Move slowly. Move slowly. 
move wisely, seek counsel, surround yourself with a church family, and please exhaust every effort. What do you do if you're divorced and you hear this teaching? First, it's the hardest thing I have to say. You may need to repent. You may need to repent. Your divorce may not have been a biblically legitimate divorce. It's therefore sin. Now, what is the beauty of repentance? That regardless of the sin, regardless of the sin that, we, uh, uh, that we're repenting of, that on the other side of repentance is complete, full, and whole forgiveness. That you are made new and you are covered by the grace of Jesus and you are not defined by any sin. And church... Divorce is hell enough. We don't need to put any more on them. With judgment and self-righteousness, it's hell enough. You know what they need? Love and grace and community and friendship and support and hope. I said this last week and I'll say it again. In the gospel is the only place where we can both be deeply sorrowful and deeply hopeful at the same time. So seek repentance if necessary. But don't sit in that. Stand up in the grace of being covered by the cross. You might be in a marriage, a second one, or whatever that was entered into sinfully. I think scripture would teach, don't break the covenant. But you might need to repent. You might need to repent. And you know what happens when you do? The blessing of God falls on your marriage and the hope of Jesus fills it. And I can't see a single verse of scripture that tells me that an unrepentant person isn't fully new in Christ and released to do incredible work for him. So stand tall.